Hi, and welcome to this edition of Practical Reliability. I'm George Williams. And I'm Joe Anderson. Joe, this week uh, we've got Brian Bieschke. Brian um, is the Director of Maintenance and Reliability at T. Parker Host, total solutions provider for maritime industry specializing in agency services, terminal operations. Steve During, we're going to have to figure out what that is, heavy and marine assets. His expertise is in heavy equipment maintenance programs, asset management, and troubleshooting. Brian, welcome. Thank you for having me, George. And awesome. Joe, Brian, um, can you give us uh, just a brief background? Sure. Um, like I said, I'm the Director of Maintenance and Reliability for HOST, um, and I oversee, uh, built, standardized, and oversee six maintenance uh, programs for them across the country. Um, I started out by dropping out of college, woo-woo, and... Uh, Went to automotive school, became an automotive mechanic, um, lost my job in 2008 during recession, went in the military, became a GSC troubleshooter, one of four on the flight deck of aircraft carrier. So that's what I did. I ran around all day troubleshooting and maintaining machines during flight operations. Um, I got out of that. I got out of the Navy, worked for Caterpillar as a field and uh, shop technician. It was awesome. I'm a Caterpillar fanboy. Um, got hired away from them to work for a material handling company where I troubleshot and maintained uh, in the field fully hydraulic and fully electronic machinery. And then I got stolen away from them to work for Host. Um, it's been a long five years at Host, and um, I always knew that I was capable of more, and I had a ceiling in all the other places, and uh, at Host, I haven't had that ceiling. So That's really an interesting point. You know, our backgrounds are kind of similar. I, I dropped out of college initially as well and, and ended up a maintenance technician and luckily and found myself in a company that uh, allowed me to expand my roles. So um, I, why don't you talk just briefly about that? You know, what was the difference between organizations where you saw that ceiling and organizations that, uh, that allowed you to, to thrive? Yeah. I mean, it's awesome that you have that same background. It's uh it's kind of rare, especially in our field. Um, everybody's, everybody's craving that bachelor's degree and all that stuff. And I've been fighting with that in my, uh, my whole career other than at host, but yeah, so that ceiling, I've always been a mechanic. Um, I've always been super, super into being the best. I know it sounds bad, but I always wanted to be the best troubleshooter, rebuild guy. Um, I took it very seriously and I knew that what I got, what I put into it is what I was going to get out of it. Um, and unfortunately in a lot of dealership positions, if you're really good at something, they want you to keep doing that something. Um, mm -hmm. and they don't want to, you know, not always, they don't want to give you the opportunity to progress because then filling your, your spot and your value becomes even harder. And they're not sure of the value that you can create in that upper position. So they don't take the chance. Uh, and I don't know if your experience is similar, but that's kind of what I found across a handful of, of companies. Um, the Navy wasn't. The Navy, the reason I got out of the Navy is because if I would have made E6, I would have been a first class petty officer and they would have made me like an LPO, which is like basically just the boss and does paperwork and doesn't get to fix machines on the flight deck. So I passed on that. Um, but host didn't. I actually applied because I knew my own capabilities. I applied to host and the original position posting was maintenance engineer. Um, and, you know, of course, the job shouldn't said bachelor's degree and all this stuff and um I knew all about maintenance and what, what failures and, and shortcomings I saw and how people manage their maintenance when I was in the dealer and things. And hell, I, I docked up my resume, applied for it. And, um, 
I did nothing but grow. Went from a maintenance engineer to equipment maintenance manager. Did that for three years. Established a couple different terminals, maintenance programs, um, from heavy equipment to cranes to crushing and screening equipment. Uh, and then as we further, we grew, I mean, hosts saw like a 500% increase in growth over the last three years. We started getting more property and more operations. And, uh, they promoted me after I got my CMRP and kind of proved, um, you know, all of my, uh, crazy ideas actually had a place in maintenance. Um, they promoted me to director of maintenance and reliability. And now I oversee the entire company's maintenance uh, program. So it's been, that's awesome, man. And, and first I want to say thank you for your service. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I understand what it's like to be what's called unpromotable, right? As you do a job well enough, um, to where people have fear and promotion because they can't find another you. Right. right. And a lot of people have a hard time recognizing that that's the problem and become bitter with the organization where other people understand their talents and, you know, they, they know what their self-worth is. And, and I'm glad you found it. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing, man. I'm happy for you. Thank so, you. Got a question then, since my background is more manufacturing plant floors and things like that, I really lack the ineptitude probably to talk heavy machines, although <laughs> there are some similarities. Can you tell me the difference, right, between, say, heavy mobile equipment maintenance than from traditional plant floor or facilities maintenance equipment when you're sure. developing maintenance strategies? Yeah. So this is when I, again, I've the terminals that I recently am overseeing in, in uh, Louisiana are half plant style, half heavy equipment. So one's a coal and pet coat facility that, that has tons of, you know, uh, pumps and conveyors and, and yeah, uh, fixed, fixed assets and things like that. So I, yeah. I've been delving into both uh, more heavy equipment uh, up until about last year. But I think the biggest differences in my opinion um, are operating environments you know, a lot of plant facilities equipment is inside, uh, or it is in one capacity all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, another one might be the influence of an operator. A lot of, in, again, I'm just speaking generally here. Um, a lot of, in, uh, facilities and plant equipment might not be heavily influenced by an operator's hand or at all. Uh, so there's that, a, a heavy mobile equipment and operators, sometimes dictating the fate of the availability of that machine, depending on how they operate it. Right. Um, and then a big one, a lot of people don't think about is, you know, in plant and facilities, there's a lot of times there's a support, a massive um, support to the maintenance operation, meaning there's engineers involved, there's asset managers, there's all these things that are supporting the decisions that are made in the maintenance program. And I'm not speaking for every heavy mobile site, but, a big, you know, a large majority of them don't have that support locally. They're looking elsewhere for it, like to the dealer or to specific manufacturers and and stuff like that. Um, And then the last one is in heavy mobile equipment. Generally, when you buy a piece of mobile equipment, you got it. You didn't have a, you didn't have a say in the design. You might have a say in the specification, um, (laughs) but you know, so your, your, your impact to the reliability is only to sustain it. You, you, you're not, it's not like a planted facility where you can either ground up, design a piece of machinery with failure mode and effects analysis, uh, or you can re-engineer things. Like you don't do that with mobile equipment. It's very rare. 
Right. That's, so that would be a say. huge difference, I guess. And, and that's something that I didn't even think of, I guess, you know, with my lack of experience in mobile equipment. I mean, that that's it's crazy to think of, right? Is you have no, normally have no control over the design phase Nothing. unless you have a high level partnership or you're such a large consumer of their product that you might be able to have some influence. Right. But typical organizations won't. Yeah. I mean, it's 80, 85, 90% of people who have a majority not, um, <clears throat> heavy equipment fleet are not going to have a say in what Caterpillar does. Right. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, that's just crazy to think. I wonder about. how many of those you have to buy to have a say. <laughs> right. Somewhere yeah. there's a client that has a say, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, when they do, <laughs> like, I'm sure, like, Peabody Mines or somebody, when they were doing underground mining, they had a say in the way that the underground loaders were designed or something. Like, who knows, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting to me is um, there's a lot of companies out there, you're right, right? They're in a position where they can dictate those things. And yet they choose not to. And here you are going, man, I wish we could. Because right? yeah. yeah. we would. And and you don't really have that option. And there's lots of manufacturing companies out there that have the option, but don't invest the time. Right. And that's, you know, as we as we progress through our, our talk here, I'll, I, I'll explain some ways in which I found to um, get ahead of those shortcomings that I'm not able to control. Well, heck, jump right in. Oh, OK. Yeah. All right. Got it. Um, so the things that, um, that I really truly believe in, and and I've kind of coined this for, for managing heavy and mobile fleets, um, is what I call the five pillars of utilization. Um, I've done podcasts and training and webinars on this. Um, and you know, actually, let me go back first and foremost, try to align, uh, my operation with my financial and business objectives. Um, I'm not always successful, but that is the number one goal. Uh, I would, I would say for a commonality between both or all maintenance. Yeah. Um, but the five pillars of utilization, you know, one being operating hours, two being fluid analysis, three being fuel consumption, five being tonnage and, or sorry, four being tonnage and five being cycle times. And the reason that they are so valuable, especially when linked with telematics, I don't know if you guys know, like, uh, like cat vision link and, you know, remote, remote monitoring of mobile equipment in real time. Um, when linked with them, it provides a, a, a very structured strategy in managing an individual asset. But to go further, applying those five principles to operating context, environment, um, uh, commodity, all the things that are changing as a piece of heavy equipment is going through its life cycle, you know, a haul truck that's brand new is going to have different inspection and maintenance criteria than a haul truck that has a hundred thousand hours on it. It's just reality. Mm-hmm. Now throw in a change in operating context. So a haul truck goes from hauling coal to hauling rock. It's total change. It's a change, right? Now take it and say, now it's working in coal dust. Um, you know, it's, you have to turn machine operating context, age environment, all those things into your inspection criteria. And I found that following those five pillars is the best way to do that. Um, the most basic being operating hours, meaning we change the uh, engine oil at 500 hours, or we do an engine swap at 30,000 hours. Those are all like the the standards, if you will, of manufacturers. They'll say, oh, you know, the rule of thumb is this engine 3412, whatever is good for 
30,000 hours. But we know that if you have competent fluid analysis with filter cutting and you monitor fuel consumption, you can start to build trends over time that really point you in the actual time it takes, or sorry, the time it, it should be changed out. Um, and the idea is, is to take all this data and put it together to get a holistic picture of the machine. Dep and, and again, I always go back to, you can't say, okay, we have this wheel loader um, and this is the inspection for all our wheel loaders. It doesn't work that way. You know, mm -hmm. it, it has to be tailored to machine type, age, environment, and capacity. Yeah. Cause context is going to determine a lot of that type of stuff as well. Right. Yeah. I mean, you have, you know, if you have, if you're in a manufacturing facility or again, I'm ignorant to it. If you have like a, a press that's stamping out metal things all day long, that's what it does all day long. Mm -hmm. If you have, if you have a wheel loader that's loading trucks, sand, it could then go and work and load rock. It could then go and act as a bulldozer and push piles up. It could then go and tow something, you know? So I saw the shortcoming of a lot with people would just go, okay, this is the inspection for this. And that's just what we do all together. There was no direction of failure finding. Um, there was no engagement of technician uh, and giving them things to look for. It was just, this is the general thing. And this is what we're going to do for everything. And they found themselves broke down more than they had available equipment. So how, how involved are operators in this? So did they do, you know, a certain level of inspection and those types of things or? Of course. Okay. Yeah. I mean, operators can literally make or break your piece of equipment. <laughs> right. Um, so first line of defense, you know, um, they're doing the pre-use inspections or they should be. Um, they're, they're seeing the machine first, first, between shifts, uh, between, you know, lunch breaks, whatever. So they get a good first visual on the machine. Um, they're the ones checking the fluids, looking around it. Uh, sometimes operators are greasing the machines. Um, I know some of the unions that our company works with, they, a lot of the operators have worked in the shop before. So they've done the services on the and, uh, PMs on the machines. Um, so they're the first line of defense. And they're also going to be the first line of defense and tell you a change in its operating context, like noises, loss of function. They're in it more than the maintenance person is, and they should be attuned to the nuances of each machine. So if something doesn't sound or feel right or see or doesn't look right, generally they'll say something because, you know, they don't want to get it pinned on them, you know? <laughs> yeah. So they're fairly actively engaged in the process then. Yeah. I mean, they have a, they have a direct, um, uh, what, like correlate, like, uh, they have, they're vested. They should be vested in it because it's dictating whether they're going to have a seat to sit in for the day and get paid. Right. And, you know, cause I wonder how, because from a manufacturing standpoint, some organizations are, are, are good at operator care, but the vast majority are not. And they're more button pushers and right. things like that. But, uh, I think there's a lot of variables that go into that as to why. Right. Um, I mean, that that's TPM, right? Total right. Productive Maintenance. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it. I'll, I'll just say, from my standpoint, I think what it comes down to is maintenance people don't trust operators to do anything because they're afraid, okay, they're going to screw something up and then we're going to have to go and fix it anyway. Or they're going to do something that's, probably borderline okay and then we're going to have some long-term effect because of it right uh, and, and i guess the thing is 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 getting to a trying to get to some root causes 
to why maintenance believes that way, right? And trying to solve those, I, I think would help. Oh yeah, um, it's a, that's, I think that that's that culturally starts at leadership, right? I, I I'll be the first person to put everything, well, a lot of things on leadership. Yeah. Um, well, if, that's if, kind if, of what I was getting to, but you yeah. <laughs> if uh, if your if your maintenance team sees you constantly feuding with an operations manager or talking badly about an operations manager in their company, what what do they have to follow? Right. You're the same. Example. The yeah. same thing. It's your example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've always been a firm believer in, and uh, uh, I've been applying this my whole time as, as a maintenance leader is, you know, I don't work for the operations manager, but I, he's my customer and I am my job. My whole job is to support him in what he does. And I've spent significant time trying to show, explain and give examples of how we need each other and how it's so important that the things that he does that are affecting equipment availability um, are only compounding to what I need. And then when I take a machine from you, if I have it just set for a scheduled service, but we pull it in and it's destroyed from something um, that could have been avoided human error. Now I've affected him twice. Mm-hmm. I've taken the machine that he said I could take. And now I've delayed his ability to have it back and perform for him because of something that could have been avoided. So I've always, I'm always trying to have that open line of communication and feedback with operations leaders. So they know like, I'm not out to get you. I'm here to support you. And the better we can align ourselves and align our, our team members, the better it's going to be for both of us. So Brian, uh, you're a unicorn. Um, so yeah, that's what I was gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> it's very rare, man. You're but a unicorn, Brian. That's it's refreshing to talk to, though. I'll tell you. I'll tell you. <laughs> but it's—I mean—you bring up um, amazingly good points, and I think Joe, one of the questions you were asking was really around like, what's the difference? Why? Why is that such a good culture in that industry, but maybe not in small manufacturing? I think to a certain degree, it's because the truck costs two hundred million dollars or more. Right? Well, it, well, it's you know, like I said, there's variables, right? There's pay, right. there's levels of training, and and things. You know, there's there's yeah. a lot of variables that, there. And so many things affect that heavy equipment. I remember I, I was teaching out at UW, and and there were folks there from a mine who said that the, they cut the training program. And their blade life cut in half because the operators don't know at what angle to come into the mounts, so they're just so they're just scooping with the thing pointing down, right? Like, yeah. Uh, yeah. So all I, those little things just they all matter to you, right? Yeah, they're they're everything. Everything is compounding. It just if an like just to your point there, if an operator is is back dragging a road, back dragging is where you put the bucket in the air and you angle the bucket, tilt the bucket down to where just the cutting edge is just hovering over the road and any anomalies in the height of the road will be smoothed out by the height of the bucket, right? Um, and that's designed to be pulled on the cutting edge. The cutting edge of the bucket is designed to wear away. It's what it's designed for. But nine times out of 10, they drop the bucket on the, the road with the skin of the bucket that's not... Yeah a wear material and they drag and they wear the heels out and the soft mild seal the bucket away. Yeah. But, but to their mind, they're like, well, I'm just back dragging it. This is a big, strong machine. There's, you know, there's nothing can happen to this thing, but there we have it. We're putting, we're reskinning buckets. We're changing cutting edges left and right. Um, but you, but you gotta, those people need to know where they fit in that. And, and that's why I, I, 
you know, I try really hard to help people understand what, what is impacting them. What, what, cause everyone's looking out for themselves in a sense. And everyone is thinking, how does this benefit or negatively affect me, me, not the organization. Um, it's me. And I always like to try to draw correlations between that from the wash rack guy all the way up to our VP. There needs to be correlations drawn there. Well, that comes with, with culture and training awareness, you know, um, a lot of that is on the, the company itself to provide, um, from an operator standpoint, they need to bring a skill set and a certain level of intelligence, right? Right. I mean, if you have someone who doesn't know what they're doing, training people, well, you're going to have a whole bunch of people who don't know what they're doing. Right. (laughs) (laughs) No doubt. And, you know, and this is, you know, I come into this interview, Brian, thinking we're going to talk about heavy machinery, but, you know, and Joe and I go through this and a lot depending, you know, it really almost doesn't matter who the guest is. It still boils down to business understanding and how you and your role and in your day-to-day work impact those business goals. That's right. There's not, I mean, that, that is the whole goal. There's no other reason to have maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You know, I always, I always say to people that are, people are like, oh, you know, this is past, right? Not, not current, but people are like, oh, you know, you guys don't fix stuff right. Cause you want job security. You want to be able to blah, blah. I'm like, just think about what you're saying. Mm-hmm. The, the end all be all of maintenance is to do nothing. Right. We don't want to do stuff. That's why we spend so much time and money trying to think ourselves out of all these boxes with condition monitoring and telematics and, and you know, the end all be all is to do nothing. We want to, we want to design out failure modes and we want to, we want to monitor things until we have to fool with them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they always say that the, the best maintenance organization, it's kind of a double-edged sword is one where everybody's standing around the problem. Right. Everybody's striving to, to do that without the work it takes to get to that point. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like some of my, some of my shops, you know, I'll, I'll look at, they sent the maintenance managers send the schedule out every week or prior to every week and I'll see it. And I'm ecstatic when I see like 15 things on there, it just says grease and inspect. Because, because they're, they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're, they're, they're value adding inspections or just creating more inspections. That's right. Well, that's what we did. So I cut my teeth in the beef packing industry. And one of the first departments I ran, we set a goal of sitting in the cafeteria Monday through Friday, letting our work be done on the weekends as it should properly. (laughs) Right. And so when we achieved that point to where we had things running so well, um, and then we, we busted our butt on the weekend, but no one was there to see it. Right. Right. But our goal was to sit in the cafeteria and let everybody see us sitting on our butt and people can stand it. Like, they're like, you guys are so lazy. You don't do anything. I'm like, I would cue my radio and say, you hear that? That's machines running. Right. Our job is to make sure that, that these machines have a hundred percent uptime. That's our goal. But they don't, you know, a lot of times people, they see that and they think, Oh, you should be fixing something. Right. Um, and they have no clue that a massive percentage of failures and long-term effects are from people touching things that don't need to be touched. (laughs) Right. 
I love seeing <laughs> operators sitting on their butt reading books while the machine just plugs away. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's right. what I want in every facility. <laughs> like, quit tweaking and touching. You feel like you have to adjust everything. Just let it run. Yeah. Yep. Stop touching it. <laughs> Stop touching it. That's right. Hey, hey, uh, Brian, can you explain to me what what's mobile heavy equipment mastermind? Oh, okay. Yeah. So um, the maintenance disrupted podcast, which used to be Rob Kavaroski's, um, uh, God, no, I'm, I'm drawing a Rob's reliability. Rob, yeah, I was on it. Rob's reliability uh, podcast. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Dobby had reached out to me and a couple other, um, heavy and mobile equipment, um, professionals. And we decided that we wanted to collaborate on uh, a training program for heavy and mobile equipment. Uh, managers, technicians, engineers, anybody who is involved in the day-to-day managing, maintaining, overseeing of heavy mobile equipment. Um, And it's a a five-course program, um, and it's very, very cool. I have the the honor of of doing the holistic maintenance program from a management standpoint. Uh, That's my part. And then there's a handful of other uh, professionals that are doing telematics, inspection processes, you know, reliability for heavy equipment and things. So it's very cool. Um, if anybody's interested in that, they can reach out to me or reach out to uh, Stephen Dobby on LinkedIn. Um, so it's going to be, it's going to be a pretty cool. Awesome. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being our guest on practical reliability. It, it's been a, a really enjoyable conversation and, uh, and we hope to have you back soon. Sure, man. Just let me know. It's all maintenance is all the same. I mean, I was just like you said, I was ready to sit on here and just pound you with heavy equipment specific stuff, but um, it, it, it's, it's all the same. (laughs) (laughs) I I know every guest, like you could just keep talking and talking and talking. It's always really good information and hopefully the listeners get a lot out of it. Uh, until next time, um, Brian, thank you so much, uh, for George and Joe signing off.